We are uh, in Luke chapter 6, a great passage well known uh, by many of us, uh, most of us, Lord willing, uh, the creation of the diaconate and uh, the, the story behind that. And again, just a quick reminder, we're looking at the book of Acts in the context of, of the revolution of the kingdom of God coming into the world and insidiously, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, uh, because of the work of the Spirit, the Spirit undermining the powers, the principalities of this world and replacing them with the power of the gospel and the different ethic and different lifestyle that is inherent in that. And there are challenges in the community of faith in the early church. There are challenges for us today. There are ideals there that certainly probably should not be applied in a one-to-one -one basis, yet nonetheless there is a closeness of community, there is an interdependency, there is a wholeness to the body which is awe-inspiring, which seems to be something that the Holy Spirit desires for all of us. And so part of the challenges we go through the book of Acts is not so much to feel condemned in one way or another or dismissive of the text because it's awkward, but because God wants for us in this day, for us to understand how it is that each community of faith, each parish church, can be interconnected in such a way that the support and the life and the health and the discipleship is such that many are gathered. It's been at the end of each one of these stories that we've read that some great influx of people happen because of God's faithfulness through his people. He adds to their numbers as they understand the implications of the kingdom. Uh, and that is a blessing and a reminder that God delights to give good gifts to his church. And those good gifts are often people with their gifts and talents and experiences and blessing. And so he blesses his church with growth. So this morning we move on to chapter 6, and I'll read the first eight verses. This is another development in the community of faith as they are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Hear now God's word. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, the word of God, in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn these responsibilities over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the group, and they chose Stephen, a man filled uh, of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Proctorus, Nacre, Timoth Timian, sorry, Parmenians, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we do desire to know what it is in ever greater degrees to be bound together to our Savior and to one another by you. 
And we ask that as we look into your word, that it is by your guidance that we might understand more clearly the work of the Father and the Son, their goals, their plans for their restoration of creation and humanity. And we pray that anything said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So this passage is exceedingly, again, as I said, familiar. And I want to look at it briefly this morning uh, through the lens of, of three basic ideas. One is that the revolution itself is revolutionized yet again. And what does that look like then for God's kingdom to be moving forward in such a way that even those who are a part of this revolution are having their own understanding of the implications of the revolution revolutionized again and again. We talk often in uh, the Reformed faith about always being reforming. And that is a wonderful tagline, but it's a challenge because always reforming means evaluating where we are, listening to those who have a disagreement or a beef, uh, who have a complaint, real or imagined, and in such a way processing those challenges that we might see if our actions as a people of God on a large uh, presbytery level or a national level or a parish level are in line with the truths of the kingdom. And we have to assume that we are always going to be being transformed by the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, because inherently we are people of need. This is a powerful story about how insidious sin really is. The brokenness of this world. We have the apostles, men who walked with Jesus, who had seen the resurrected Jesus, had broken bread with the resurrected Jesus, had the privilege of seeing him ascend, who understand the power of the gospel and are preaching the resurrection and the reconciliation between humanity. They've seen the miracle of Pentecost. They've been broken out of jail by an angel. They had the power to rejoice in being beaten, that they might share in the sufferings of Christ. And yet, normal human biases towards people like ourselves are still present in the community of faith. So that these godly individuals, by no conscious effort to be uh, disrespecting the Hellenistic Jews, that is, those who'd come back from the diaspora, those who had not grown up in the Promised Land, hadn't grown up in uh, Judea and Galilee and in, around Jerusalem. Those Jews who had been, because of some of the original exiles, dispersed throughout the kingdom, throughout the world. As they come back, they look a little different. Their dialects are a little different. They are different. And by no conscious effort, but simply because of the reality of fallen humanity, they had inadvertently overlooked the diaspora Jews returning in the distribution of daily bread. I know that we get knocked sometimes as Reformed people about saying that we believe that Scripture teaches that people are born and conceived in evil. That because of Adam and Eve, we are totally depraved. That there is no part of our humanity which has been uh, left untouched by the consequence of sin and decay. And a passage like this, as it subtly reminds us 
that here are the great apostles, men that God builds his church on, and yet the problem of insidious sin not allowing us to see one another as fully equal, but there's always an other. There's always a temptation for an other. We read this in Jesus' ministry because could anything good come out of, uh, what was it, Galilee, right? Nazareth, right? Yeah, that's right. I would not pass my Bible exam right now. Inside, those who grew up in the promised land, they still had issues about who lived and was born in one neighborhood or one county versus another. It's just in us. And dear brothers and sisters, we know that that is not what is in God. And so for us to embrace the reality that it, this insidious way in which we see the other is the first affirmation or a further affirmation of that wonderful little summary of the gospel that Tim Keller has popularized, that Dr. Clowney originated, that you are worse than you ever feared. A passage like this allows us to realize that even the disciples, the apostles themselves are revealed as worse than we ever feared. There is a reality that unless we embrace the fullness of that doctrine, I don't mean just that, you know, it'd be really nice if I stopped looking at the wrong websites or if I was a little less angry or I had a few tendencies that were uh, reformed and less problematic. If we deal with these things at a surface level, just rearranging sins and preferences a little bit here and a little bit there, we don't embrace the reality that Scripture regularly repeats, you're going to need heart surgery, Ezekiel says. It is so radical, the change that we need and to understand the implications of the kingdom that the revolution has to be revolutionized to realize how deep the rabbit hole really is. And there is only freedom in recognizing that we are worse than we ever feared. Because otherwise we are going to be unable to hear the pleas of those that one way or another, consciously or unconsciously, by the norms around us, we offend and reject and ostracize or dismiss as less valuable a comment. Their accent makes us think that they're perhaps not less intelligent. Their actions, perhaps different than ours, makes us think that they are either lazy or insincere. And we may have to learn and listen. So the first reality is that we need a revolution that is constantly being revolutionized by an honest assessment of our condition. It's not meant to condemn. Notice here the apostles' response. The apostles' response is not denial. The apostles' response is not blame shifting. The apostles' response is, this is a problem we need to address. Again, what does defensiveness Indicate. Defensiveness usually indicates insecurity. If I admit as an apostle that I have been failing to properly treat the Hellenistic Jews, what does that say about me? It will undermine my leadership. Apostle's response is, this should not continue. How do we fix it? They don't unnecessarily bear burden. It is simply a problem. 
a challenge brought up by the normal realities of living in a broken and fallen world that the gospel is big enough to address and the disciples address it. No defensiveness. Again, I might suggest that that's probably because they'd been with Jesus enough to realize that total depravity is a reality. Peter remembers his inability to stay faithful to Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He also remembers that in, within a few days of him, or within a few moments, he could both declare Jesus to be the Messiah and then encourage Jesus not to go to the cross. It's the humility that understands that I am always a disciple of Christ. I am always being transformed by His work in my life. And He never points anything out to me or to our community that He does not plan to address in a caring and loving way as He sanctifies and grows us in His character. The revolution has to be revolutionized. It's going to be revolutionized every time we come face to face, yet again, with the realities of a broken and fallen world and its impact on us. But clearly, the apostles understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't need to deny it. I am called to figure out how to apply the gospel to it, which is what they do. They institute an office whose primary role is that of reconciliation. The diaconal role is one First of all, you notice that the names, some of which I butchered, are not Hebrew names. They are from the diaspora. So what do the apostles do? Again, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, they realize in godly wisdom, the best way to do this is probably not just to put some of our boys in charge, because, let's face it, the boys that we know are probably better with money, because you never know about the Hellenistic Jews. They may not be good with money. So we're going to put our boys in charge and we're going to make sure that they take care of the money. No, they realize we are one in Christ. And in fact, to make sure that this blindness does not continue, we want a diverse group of diaconate that will care for all of us. We want in leadership the reality of the equality in Christ to be present so that our brothers and sisters who are Hellenistic Jews see their own people leading and being responsible for this ministry. There's reconciliation in who is chosen. The point of the ministry is to make sure that reconciliation between these two groups becomes a part of the community of faith. It's built into the very DNA. We want to make sure we are paying attention to the needs of our brothers and sisters. Whether they are from Palestine or from the far-flung regions of the Roman Empire, we want them to be cared for. And in so doing, reconciliation happens. Relationships happen. It's no longer us and them. But you see the work. And of course, you have disciples, now made deacons, who become amazing story characters in the next few narratives of this text. Doing amazing things and being used by God. And now there they are, a part of the story in an integral fashion to the work of the kingdom. One of them even being called to martyrdom. The role of reconciliation 
is the right response to understanding the problem of sin which separates one human being from another human being based on sinful criterion of being different than me. The quote on the front that you have in your worship folder, the middle quote, reflects that reality that reconciliation is difficult for us. That we seem to have a need to label people different than us in some way that is derogatory that we can keep our separation. The problem is not in the other. The problem is in our response to the other and the need to create in them something less than ourselves. And the role of the deacon in the end is not primarily about money. It is a visible sign and practice and outworking of the call to be ambassadors of reconciliation, an office of reconciliation. It's why at CVP, uh, to some degree, I get asked occasionally, what, what, why don't we have deacons? And we do. There are people acting as deacons in this church right now. We're wrestling through how to rightly recognize that and also guard against, and I'll just say it, guard against the unfortunate reality that the American deacon has become a catch-all for what the elders don't want to do. And so you read the BCO, our book of church order, it's blue, it's very nice. Deacons become responsible for things like the physical plant, for all of the funds of the church and budget, and all these other areas that are wonderful but aren't necessarily included Certainly in their founding document, in their founding uh, directive. There are lots of people who aren't necessarily called to be deacons who have the ability to help us set up and take down and maintain the facility. There are lots of people who have the gifts to run finances who may or may not be called to serve in the diaconal role. We want at CVP to protect our deacons in such a way that they can be released to do Act 6 to lead us in ministries of reconciliation and to care for the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the alien at the gate of our city. We want them free to pursue the biblical calling without the encumberment of those practical and good and needful things that have to be addressed within the body of Christ, that it might be run well and that our facilities might be well cared for. It is not a question of whether one role is more grand than the other. It is a question of combining a bunch of roles into one that may not terribly, well, they just don't encourage each other. Lastly, if we have a revolution that needs to be continually revolutionized because it is full of human beings who are worse than they ever feared, and we have in the right response of the deacons a role that promotes the reality of reconciliation, we have to, of course, finish the sermon on the great reality of the second part of the gospel as described in that wonderful two-part phrase, you are worse than you ever feared, you are more loved than you can possibly imagine. It is that reality of God's unconditional love, His grace to His church in bringing this issue up in a timely fashion that allows them to respond in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and make sure that all are cared for. It is the love that is shown by the apostles knowing that they can admit and recognize and make changes 
that better served the congregation without fear of loss of position or prestige, that they had to have all of the answers or in some way critique from below was in some way an undermining of their authority. The right proclamation of the word is maintained because we need people not only speaking the word of the gospel in actions, but actually using words. Dr. Rayburn in his sermon series uh, over the course of our presbytery stressed in his first sermon the importance and the power of words. The apostles here are not demeaning the work of the diaconate by saying, should we not focus on our responsibility of prayer and the word? that the gospel might go forward in the way in which the apostles were called to bring the truth of the gospel. And in the same way, to empower those gifted in other means to bring the truths and the ethics of the gospel into people's lives in more physical and tangible ways. The response of the church, first, in their generosity to the widows. Second, in their willingness to be corrected in order that the way they took care of the widows became an even better illustration of the love of the gospel is evidence of their understanding in ever greater degrees of what it means to be loved than they, more loved than they can possibly imagine. People who are afraid religiously of failing can't love this way. Because they don't think they're loved unconditionally. They think they're loved conditionally by what they do for God. How they are different than the other in a more righteous way. It eliminates the ability for correction. It eliminates the ability for growth. And it makes us usually bitter and angry every time a problem is raised. The proof of the gospel in, these, in this narrative is the response of the disciples and the response of the congregation to fixing a problem that existed. The church doesn't often respond well to having its weaknesses pointed out from the inside or from the outside. So I might encourage us that collectively and individually, to the degree that we are able to hear from others areas where we may need to change and grow, corporately and individually, our response is an indication of how much we believe that second part of the proclamation or that, that definition of the gospel. See, we have to believe both parts for this to work. We have to be brutally evaluative of our situation. We also have to be lavishly accepting of God's love if we are going to proceed. Both are true and both are held together that the revolution might go forward. And it is so interesting in this text as we come to the conclusion of the sermon that God makes a point in stressing by the Holy Spirit that priests were transformed through this response. There's something about what happened and how it was disseminated and the information as it was seen in word and deed about what the disciples did to make sure that all the widows were well taken care of that spoke to the priests those called to absolutely serve the word of God and to practice it and yet to see the care for the most vulnerable. And it made sense. It brought home the implications of a resurrected Jesus and a transformed Jewish understanding of who God was 
that was so powerful that at this point Luke wants to point out that priests were converted at very high levels. This is encouraging to me as a minister. Someday I may become a believer. Even pastors can come to faith when they see the work of Jesus, realizing that it's not their degrees and it's not our power and it's not our authority and it's not the prestige of the ministry, but it is seeing God's people caring for one another that can break the hardest heart. Even the religious can be broken by the care of the gospel, by the care that is extended to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate, and the humility of those who serve to be corrected even in their service. Those two things working together speak against perfectionism, religious achievement, and speak to the reality of the importance of the word, to be sure, but also the word spoken in love. That's the calling of the diaconate. It is a representation, a special emphasis on, of course, what we're all called to do. In our own ways, we all have diaconal roles. That isn't to demean the office itself. It is a recognition that what makes a great deacon is what makes a good disciple of Christ. One who is recognizing their need and willing to have their life transformed, but always knowing that they are perfectly and fully safe and loved in their Father's arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. We ask that you would again encourage us by these realities. Lord, not defensive about our sin and so, so, so trusting in the fullness of your love for us that we might learn and grow wisely what it is to be like you, that the revolution may continue, the revolution of life and light in a world that so desperately needs it. We pray you would do this in our hearts and do it through us in our relationships, in our church, and in our community. In Christ's name, amen.